This is the show where we sit down with marketers, leaders, and other creative folks about how they are investing in and building brands. We shoot here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in our office. And as always, we have our live studio audience. Thanks for being here, live studio audience. And we have our crew. How are, how are you? How are you? Well, I'm good. Good. <laughs> so we have a very special show for you today. I sat down with someone who is one of the coolest people I have ever met. Her name is Lauren Fleshman. Lauren was a collegiate athlete. She was a USA 5K champion twice. That means that she was the fastest woman in the United States of America twice. That's ridiculous. Lauren has been a spokesperson for Nike. She started her own business called Picky Bar. She has an incredible career. Now, Lauren also has a podcast called Work, Play, Love, where she and her husband discuss running, what it's like to have a family, and all these other things. I love their podcast. And I was listening to it recently, and Lauren and her husband were having a conversation about running as a spectator sport and how it's hard to have the context of how fast people are without a regular person running next to them. Let's play that clip. I was talking with somebody the other day about how it would be fun to just have like a Joe Schmo lane. <laughs> in every race. In every race. <laughs> like someone who trains regularly but has this a job. This is like the fastest guy on your block or in your in, town. Or in your town. <laughs> and he's lining up next to so-and-so. And you see him last a third of a lap with everybody, you know? They're right. We need context. And I, an average runner, am happy to provide that context. So a few hours before I sat down to interview Lauren, we went to the track. Take a look. You know where those? <laughs> I'm here with Lauren Fleshman today. Thank you so much for being here. We're about to sit down for an interview in the next hour. And we do not do this with every guest, but I felt it was very, very important for us to get out to the track so people can understand just how fast you really are. So Lauren, how fast are you? How fast do you run a mile? My fastest mile is four minutes and 23 seconds, which is just over a minute per lap, a minute and five seconds per lap. Do you think there's any chance I can come close? Um, you know, let's just see what happens. Let's give <laughs> okay. it a shot. Uh, great, <laughs> you it. thank you. All right, let's do this thing. Here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna wanna run in lane one, so it's the shortest distance. And uh, it's gonna be four laps. I'll read you your time each lap, so you can kind of pace yourself. I recommend not going out too fast, because um, okay. it hurts a lot. Okay. And you want to wear the you want to wear the glasses. So you I, bounce around a little. Are you okay? I think I should wear them. Okay, yeah. that sounds good then. <laughs> okay, are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Let's do it. Ugh. All right, you're gonna go on my whistle, okay? <clears throat> okay. On your mark. Let's go, let's go! His form's not bad, he's done this before. Right now I'd be coming through the first lap. Um, so he's running about 25% slower than I was already. All right, let's go, let's go! Nice job, keep a steady clip, you got it. Here we go, 126, 127, 128. If you look at the uh, arm carriage, his arms are a little bit high, but they're symmetrical, and that's the most important thing. He's got decent biomechanics, I'd say. 
So if this were me, I'd be coming through the second lap right now. And where is he? He's uh, just reaching one and a half laps right now. 301, 302, just over six minute pace. Keep it rolling. Still on pace pretty much. He hasn't slowed down that much. You can tell he's hurting though. He's breathing pretty hard. How are we feeling? Oh, I'm tired. Why? Are tired? Are you hot? I saw that. Do you think hot. you're, how are you feeling? You think you're on pace? I think I'm, okay. I don't think I'm gonna beat her. Any other thoughts? Oh, good God, I want to see Woo! How'd I do? <laughs> um, you did great. 621. I got you beat by almost two minutes, okay. but it was very respectful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the journal got going there. We'll be back, right back at the interview with Lauren, right after this. That's a good mile. That's the best mile I've ever done. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> yeah. Hello. A lot of folks have been asking for a behind-the-scenes look of Brandwagon. Follow me, I'll show you around. So this space was actually just a one big flex space that we were using for the whole company for big meetings. We had a bunch of couches over here and we were able to commandeer the space. It's about 25 by 30 feet. And we put up a black pipe and drape to control the light and some of the sound on one of the walls. And we built a couple of kind of fake modular walls so we can uh, construct two sets. <sighs> so here we are on the Blockbuster video set. Uh, now, before we even thought about shooting Brandwagon, we tasked uh, one of our designers, Dave Sizemore, to come up with what a set could look like that is kind of indicative of the Wistia brand. And this is what he came up with. So here we shoot all of the Brandwagon interviews and in these chairs. We have uh, Savage and the featured guest. And uh, what's cool about this space is that it can actually get reconfigured. We can bring a table and chairs in here and it can accommodate a multicam webinar or um, any other shows that we're working on. We have a television here that we can put up different logos on uh, to make it feel like a different type vibe of the show. And you know, a lot of you have been asking about the VHS tapes. Yes, there are tapes inside of all those jackets. Uh, we found them from a bunch of thrift shops from around town. Behind me is what we refer to as home base for Brandwagon. This is where Chris sets up the show, closes the show, kind of flight controls the show. It can have guests up there in the chairs. But behind this set is actually just a 25 foot wall. And we built that wall to hide some windows in the back, but also just give us the flexibility of having a nice wide shot. This is the widest shot we've ever had at Wistia, a 25 foot section. So we can really pull the camera back and build up a scene. So in this case, we've built this set for Brandwagon, but we can also transform the set uh, for different shows using a bunch of different props as well. Well, hello down there. I'm on a ladder now looking at our ceiling mounted lights. This is our first lighting grid that we've ever had at Wistia and boy, I am just tickled by it. So the advantages of having a light grid, all your lights hanging from the ceiling, unlimited floor space, so much room for activities. You can move that camera around everywhere. You're not looking at light stands. So we actually had a lighting director come in and consult on the placement and the install of these lights. All the lights are controlled by a lighting board, which I actually know very, very, very little about. I know enough to be dangerous. And we have some custom software on a Microsoft tablet that lets us 
kind of control the lights and set a, a bunch of different lighting cues for different shows. Now, one of my favorite parts of this whole studio is on the back wall, we have a bunch of multicolored LED lights that we can control to our heart's content. We can make a gradient. We can basically dial in any color that we want. And why that's awesome is it just gives us more flexibility to further brand different looks for different shows. It's a win-win-win. Welcome to Master Control, our humble abode where we direct all of the shows that we shoot over here in the Wistia Studios. We're shooting on Canon C100 Mark IIs. These things shoot at 1080p, but we were able to get them for a fire sale because of that. So all the cameras run into these two monitors. We record in camera, but these monitors kind of give the director a bird's eye view of everything that's getting shot on the show. Make sure everything's gonna look great in post. The first Wistia studio was just a ream of paper and a couple of lights in a conference room. It was a space never meant to be a studio. Here we are, almost 10 years later, in another space never meant to be a studio, but with some creative ingenuity, some pipe and drape, and a little bit more of a budget, we've been able to make it work and make it work really well. Thanks so much for stopping by. Lauren didn't start her career as a marketer, but she has always had a strong sense of her values that she brings to everything that she does. Whether it was being the spokesperson of a giant business, deciding to start her own company, building her podcast, Lauren is the real deal. She is who you would hope that she would be. To the degree that when we got to the track, she couldn't help herself from coaching me and giving me words of encouragement, which honestly helped me run the best mile time I've ever done in my entire life. Lauren is a shining example of somebody who knows how to take a brand and to, how to have that brand reflect the values that you want it to reflect. And the amazing thing about that is that that's what we look for today in companies. We want to know what companies stand for. We want to know what they're about. We want to know what their values are. And that's why I wanted Lauren here. So you can learn from her about how she takes her values and imparts it onto the brands that she works with. Let's roll the interview. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you for having me. I am so excited that you're here. There's so many questions I have for you. Oh, thanks. I'm still riding high after your mile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad one of us is riding high. I mean, I feel good. That was honestly a personal yeah, best for me. So that's good. I feel like my coaching maybe helped a little it bit. It did help. It really, it honestly, <laughs> it honestly did. All right. So look, you have an amazing story. You are one of the world's like fastest athletes. You are an entrepreneur. You have you know, helped other brands grow, changed, I would say, some of their values along mm -hmm. the way of some of the world's biggest <laughs> brands. You're sitting with us here today. Like, what? Tell us, our, tell us your story. Sure. Yeah, I had kind of a storied collegiate career, like one of the lucky few that gets recruited out of college to be a professional and won two U.S. titles, was seventh in the world once, was on a few U.S. teams at world championships. And um, one of the kind of surprising things was that um, learning how marketing works from being on the, on the side of like, okay, I am a marketing asset. I am pitching myself to companies as a good investment. Um, you're saying, when you're saying you're a marketing asset. Yeah. Like it's the realization that if you're working with Nike, mm -hmm. that you, they are going to use you yep. to market them. Yes. So for me, that's a weird thing, right? Like, like that must be very bizarre yes. to sit there and try to evaluate yourself. Like, am I a, is my value as an asset growing? Is it decreasing? What's the angle? Like, how do you, how do you think about that? The sport of track and field, along with most individual Olympic sports, it's like people only care once every four years. And so the reporters don't really care. People aren't writing stories about you. So for each year that you're out of college, you become less and less 
valuable in a way. There's always like somebody who's slower than you right out of college yeah. who has more of a more relevant recent brand. Um, and so what I realized in the sport after a few years was I was getting faster. I won my first national championship. And I had this story that I thought, well, when I become a national champion, then people will care, then stories will be written, and then that'll, you know, make sure that I'm valuable enough to continue my sponsorships and all that stuff. And it just didn't happen. It was okay. like crickets. You're like, wow, I have to take control of my own story. I need to find ways to put myself out there. I can't be waiting for a reporter to knock on the door. And and that realization and taking the cur- you know, having the courage to dive into that and lean into that really set me up for everything else that's come. That's a huge realization. Yeah, big time. Absolutely. And, you you know, um, at first it kind of felt not fair. I was like, I don't want to have to tell my own story. Yeah. I want people to just come and figure it out and whatever. I think that I just thought that's how stuff worked. But then, um, but then it became a real opportunity. So I'm like, I get to be in charge of my own story. I get to determine what is seen and what is not seen. And I get to hopefully, maybe, possibly affect people's lives in some way. Um, you know, because people, I think what I realized with track and field was that people don't really care how fast you run. They care about how you make them feel. And that's kind of the same thing with business that I've learned and carried over into business is they care about how you make them feel. And so all of marketing and storytelling for me comes back to that. A lot of times it's creating something for free, but you're doing it because you want to, you want to make them feel something. Um, hopefully that comes back in the business side, but even if it doesn't, each time it's still worthwhile. One of the reasons that I'm so excited that you're here today is that you are an incredible brand storyteller. And I know that our audience, like one of the things they're going to be concerned about is they're going to say, we hear all the time, like, well, what if my company is boring? What if our products (laughs) are boring? What if our people are boring? Um, What do boring businesses or boring people who think they don't have a story, like, what should they do? Yeah, I think that, you know, you'd just be surprised that there are there are a lot of people interested in your story and that if you don't try to win everybody over and you try to go narrow but deep with the people who do care about what you're saying, just focus on them. Um, It's worth it. I think that it's a lie to believe that anyone's story is boring. I mean, you just have to tell the story truthfully and let people in on what's real. And that is what makes a heart connection with somebody. They can tell bullshit versus what's real. You said my story is universally worthwhile. It's not. 15 years ago, people would have said, no, your career is pointless until you win a medal. None of it matters, right? So I think that um, I would just encourage businesses to lean into their story and lean into the failures. It was actually the telling of my failures, failures by someone else's um, ideas of approval. Most of the things we do don't go as planned, right? And then when you do have victories, people have been along for the ride with you and they're rooting for you and they want to celebrate with you. I think you can make an interesting story out of anything because if you have a goal, no matter what the business is, there's a journey involved in getting there. Everyone can relate to a journey. And so if you have a story, Mm -hmm. but you're not telling it, Mm -hmm. then no one's going to connect with it, no one's going to feel anything. So you end up making this bar, the Pinky Bar, delicious, Mm -hmm. uh, real food for (laughs) athletes. Um, How did you figure out how to tell the story? Like, how did you differentiate this? Yeah, so what I really did was I focused on um, doubling down on my own personal blog and the free content that I was providing for people in my community so that they were getting a direct benefit from me. And then I was only one degree of separation from Picky Bar. So if they connected with me, they would be able to connect with picky bars. And, and you I'm, just knew that. 
You you knew. Yeah. That well, like, I knew that because that's why companies pay you, right? Yeah. As a marketing asset. They yeah. hope that people will watch you run around a track or hear your interview and then go buy Nike sneakers or whatever it is. Um, and they're, it obviously works because they sponsor people all the time. So once I started my own business, I was like, I can, I can be my own uh, marketing asset. Like why sell somebody else's product yeah. when I could sell my own product yeah. with the work that I'm doing? And I can tell that story more directly. So the brand of Picky Bars and my personal brand have a huge Venn diagram overlap in the middle. We aren't the same person because the business needs to be able to survive outside of me. But as far as just values go, um, and things I put out into the world, themes about life, um, and it's something anybody could do in their content. Like, what are your values? And how do you, yeah. how do you figure out what your values are in a like crystallized way? Yeah. So I guess what started for me was why do people like me in the sport? What, the people that follow me, why do they follow me? Why do they care? And what I sort of realized was that I feel like, and I don't know this for sure. You'd have to pull people. My gut was that. I was a person who cared about performance, but I didn't take myself too seriously. Like I was able to be irreverent and connect with people. I, didn't, I wasn't elitist. I didn't have this kind of elite athletes are here and then Joe Joggers over here. It was like, we're all part of the running community. And that's just genuine to who I was. And I think people pick up on that and they feel seen by me when I'm at events and things like that. And so I thought, you know, Picky Bars can be a, um, a nutrition brand you know, we have bars, oats, and granola now, and all of our branding can be around, yeah, it's okay to try hard at stuff. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be uptight. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be, you know, hierarchically put yourself over somebody else to do it. You can have a good time. And so that's the spirit that we pull into the brand as well. It's just so interesting to me because I, I think it can be so hard to see yourself mm -hmm. and to know like how others see you. Yeah. And it seems like you had to go in this process, probably also by being like a public figure, yeah. And being used in advertising and being out there at events and all those types of things that, you know, honestly, like every small, medium sized business should do this. Mm -hmm. And they should figure out what their values are. And the people inside those businesses should figure out what their values are. And that's how you figure out what brand values yeah, are. Absolutely. But, you start there with your individual values. But it's scary, right? It can be scary mm -hmm. to try to be like, well, why are people actually connecting with me? Yeah. It Definitely. seems like I would, just from my vantage point, only having met you today on the track, uh, <laughs> it seems like you're someone who really cares about making the world better, too. I do. I genuinely really care about that. You know, that drives me every day. And I don't know, I just, I feel like if I can do good with the businesses I'm a part of, great. If not, I'm not interested in having my own business. What's the point? Exactly. I'm with you. What's <laughs> the point? It's too much work. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah, if you can harness it in the direction you want, it's so satisfying. You wake up every day with a purpose. You get to you scale know? your values. Yeah, It's you like do. how I feel about Wistia. I love what I do every day. That's amazing. Um, and for us, it was like the moment that we bought back the company a couple of years ago. It was like, well, if we're going to do this, yeah. you know <laughs> yeah, what? Let's do we're it. going big we're, and we're doing what we believe in yeah. and we're not going to sacrifice. Yep. And it's like, I try to, I try to ask myself those questions all the time. Like, is this still fulfilling for the way mm -hmm. that I want it to be? Like, am I living the life I want to lead? Are we building the brand of the company we want to build? Yeah. That's the point. That's right? the point. Yeah. As soon as you lose that, the business loses its fire. Yeah. And I think if it's not like compelling to you, it's not going to be compelling to somebody else. Yeah. So yeah, that keeps me going. I think the other thing that was kind of interesting to learn was that Near the end of my second Nike contract, I wanted to start a family. And 
that was really incompatible. You know, it's been all over the news. New York Times, yeah. there's been a lot of stuff about it. It's really incompatible with um, the traditional right? sports industry and the way contracts were written and everything at that time. And not just with Nike, but pretty much every major brand. And I just didn't get it. But then around that same time, there was a startup, um, Wazal, they're based in Seattle. And I was like, you know, it would be a dream. Dream would be if that company could afford me yeah. because I felt like my values and their values were completely in line. And I mean, I just love that scaling your values phrase because that is what it felt like. It felt like a huge opportunity to, to do that. So I jumped ship. So I've been um, with Wazel since January of 2013. And they have since taken two of the biggest names in, in sports, like in women's sports, um, into their own that's brand. incredible. Yeah, it's really neat. So it just kind of shows that um, that I think that a lot of businesses are afraid to kind of put their values out there and really take a stand because they're afraid they're going to um, alienate some people. But what you really do when you do that is do a deepening and thickening with the people who are already a better match for you. Yeah. And yes, you will lose some people. But like Wazal, for example, is a really openly feminist brand. Like they just launched this line that 20% of all the proceeds go to Planned Parenthood. Sweet. That's a That's, pretty divisive thing yes, to put on the internet, yeah. right? <laughs> and they just were like, well, here Ready goes. Bing, yeah. yeah. like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> post. Yeah. And um, it, it's like one of those things where those are their true values. And then some people will leave and other people will be like, hell yes, you know. Well, you were, obviously. Yes, I was. And you left Nike yeah, to go there. To do that, yeah. And you, I would assume, took on more risk in doing that. Absolutely. And I worked harder than I've ever worked for any other brand in my life. Yeah. And they brought me in as um, a partner as well. So you have Piggy Bars mm -hmm. and you have Wazelle. In both cases, your values align. Yep. Piggy Bars incredibly deeply. Mm -hmm. Wazelle, it turns out, also very deeply. And then you need to market your values as you market these businesses, as you are an ambassador. Yeah. Um, how do you actually do that? Um, both businesses, a big value is come in here, we love you. Um, especially with the running community, it can be people can be made to feel othered, you know, and um, outnumbered and not fast enough and um, not a real runner until I fill in the blank or not a real athlete until I fill in the blank, right? And so we both businesses really care about breaking those barriers down and have people be like, if you have a body, you're an athlete. If you go out and care about things, that's awesome. It doesn't matter what the clock says or what your finishing place is. Like it's all the rewards are in the doing. And, um, and so those are the kinds of stories we tell. We make sure that we tell a variety of stories from a variety of of um, people from different races and ethnicities and body types and geographic locations and economic um, situations and, uh, and entry points to sport, right? Like some were later in life, some were in as kids and making sure that those stories become, are represented and, and, and be, create a chorus of like, come in here, you know, we want you. And I know that can sound a little bit different than narrow and deep, but it really is more about it. the running community already is narrow, right? Or the endurance community is already very narrow. And so that is part of creating the depth and actually changing the culture, like using your brand to change the culture of the sport itself, to be more inclusive, um, to feel like more of one unit and less stratified. And I think that's positive. So what you're talking about uh, I think is really, really compelling and 
I mean, the podcast you do with your husband. Mm -hmm. I was listening to the episode that you just put out at the end of July, and you're talking about a lot of different stuff. You like you have the questions from the audience mm -hmm. that you always go through. You talk yeah. about how Piggy Bars is doing, mm -hmm. the challenges. Yeah. You're putting it all out there. Like, oh, literally, someone was like, what is the point of this podcast? Like, <laughs> does it do anything for you? And then the two of you are in there talking about it. It's wild. Yeah. It is pretty crazy. I mean, the podcast, what we sort of took into the business from our athletic careers was that as a pro athlete, there was this myth that people will only care if you're one of the best in the world. But then I learned and my husband learned that people care if you can tell a story that makes them feel something, right? If they feel educated, entertained, or some other kind of feeling of pleasure or joy or sorrow or something in that heart connection, like that is, then people care. And they actually, you could be 15 seconds slower in the mile and they will be more loyal to you than the person who doesn't share any part of their journey and they just create world beater performances every now and then. And so we took that into business and we thought people, if we can keep people connected to the journey of Picky Bars and use this business, be transparent about our business so that our customers get inside looks into our struggles, our mess ups, um, and the things like even just being transparent about how we market to people. Um, they will be along for the ride. Like they'll feel invested in this company and ideally cool if they buy more stuff. But even if they don't buy more stuff, they will, will be on their radar. Maybe they'll tell someone who might buy our stuff or whatever. So yeah, and it, I just feel like there's really no downside to it. Maybe I'll find out later. <laughs> but we do, we talk about it on the podcast regularly. I mean, creating the podcast with my husband and I was a way to create a new kind of content format to reach people that we weren't already reaching. Like we needed, we needed a new way to get more people that costs us very little because we don't have very much money. And it's turned out to really help the business a lot, actually. It's been Yeah, how has it great. helped the business? I think just by providing... Uh, a deeper way for people to feel connected to our story as individuals and the brand story. And, and if they feel like they get something of value from us, um, they have more of an affinity and a connection with us. So it's a little bit of like a leap of faith, you know, but we have noticed that club retention, um, our subscription club retention is better. Uh, direct sales on the website have been stronger. Like we're growing more than our expected amount. Could be due to a lot of different things. It's hard to know, but we know the podcast isn't hurting. And I think like there was fear at first about putting some of the mistakes out there or some of the numbers that may not seem that impressive or what will people think. But I think in the end, it makes people root for you more. That insight though is really, um, really important mm -hmm. because the idea that people want to root for somebody. Yeah. And they care. They've built a connection. And it's like, if you have challenges and they know about them, mm -hmm. they want you to overcome them. Yeah. So this type of brand storytelling, where you're being your own spokesperson, it's happening more and more. There are more companies that are making podcasts, video shows. What advice do you have for people who are jumping into that journey? I think the first thing you just have to do is decide your story is worthwhile. Um, you have to work towards self-approval and release yourself from the outside definitions of approval in your industry. And then you just don't try to win everybody over. Be who you are. Um, get narrow and deep with people who resonate with you. Deepen and thicken those relationships. And trust that if you are providing something of value to them and making them feel a certain way, it will spread in a direct way, one degree of separation from them, to people who are actually interested in what you're doing. 
Lauren, thank you so much for being here on Brandwagon today. Hey, thanks. This is thanks super for having fun. me. This yeah, I really so enjoyed it. You want to go run another mile? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Lauren Fleshman. Are you kidding me? She's amazing. Now, one of the things that Lauren said that I could not agree with more is that the audience doesn't want to just root for the person who wins gold. They want to root for the person who has the, they have the strongest connection to, whose values they share. Honestly, the person who tells the best story about trying to win gold. That's who I want to root for. That's probably who you want to root for. And the funny thing about that is I think it's the same as products. You don't just want to pick the best product. You want to pick the product that has the brand that you have the strongest connection to whose values you share, and honestly, who is doing the best job at telling their story. Now, Lauren has built her brand by telling her story in the most personal way, and I think that is amazing. And I think you should not be afraid to tell your story, to share what's working, to share what's not working, to bring people in on the attempts. And you're not always gonna win, but you might build the strongest connections. Thank you so much for being here, Lauren. Thank you to the Live Studio audience. Thank you to the crew. Subscribe on our channel, find us on the podcast, and we'll see you next time. Next time on Brandwell, we head down to New York City to see how they think about brand on Madison Avenue. And Chris Levine breaks out his old camcorder, but doesn't quite remember how to use it.